Welcome to the Scale with Tech and AI Growth Lab podcast. I'm your host, Jay Farr at Tech Fusion Systems. Our guest is Jeff Goldfinger at Extra Mile Enterprises. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Appreciate the time, Jay. My pleasure. So can you kick us off and uh, give us a top level overview of your business and what you do at Extra Mile? Sure. The simple answer is I help individuals and corporations grow their revenue for the sake of taking care of their survival and the survival of their organization. The slightly longer answer is I focus on helping those make, helping again, helping individuals and companies make more powerful offers in the marketplace involving sales, business development, proposal writing, public speaking, et cetera. And my tagline is called putting the H2H back in the B2B because I work in the world of complex sales, primarily in the aerospace, defense, and security industries, where it's the relationship you have with people is more important than your product or service. Right. Understood. So that's pretty high level transactions there in the defense contracting and sales world. That's cool stuff. And I see on your LinkedIn banner, I like the way you have your services laid out. Presentation, sales, coaching, keynotes, consulting, development, proposals, biz dev around extra mile dot training. Can you give us uh, a few examples of some of the projects that you've done with clients that are pretty typical? Yeah. So I'll tell you what, a little bit about how I got started in this. So I'm, I'm a Navy, like you, I'm a Navy veteran, flew airplanes for 20 years. And one of my earliest assignments coming out of the Navy, I worked for a small systems engineering company and they hired me out as a consultant. And I was helping a manufacturer of high-end electro-optical surveillance balls, the kind of surveillance cameras that go into unmanned aircraft, both manned and unmanned aircraft. So the, you know, what you'd see traffic cams in a helicopter or some of the high-end unmanned aircraft, what people call drones. I don't really like that word, but uh, let's go with it for now. Okay. All right. So they were bidding on a very large government program. This was going to be many year program. This was worth to them about a quarter billion dollars. And so I first helped them on the proposal in helping them understand their, we always talk about features, function, and benefits. I like to focus more on what's uncommon about what their offer is in the marketplace. The unique value proposition. Yeah, and but I'm always careful to word, use that word unique, right? Unique literally means one of a kind. And right. hardly anybody has a one of a kind, right? So the key is what's uncommonly valuable about their offer, right? Yeah, it may enough. not actually be unique, but it has slightly more uncommon value than the other competitor. Is that you follow? Yeah, no, that's better said for sure. Yeah. It's not common language, but I totally agree with you from like a technical standpoint, that is more accurate description. Yeah. And that's what the brain, by the way, is looking for. Our brains are always looking for the things that are uncommon. When we hear the standard phrases, features, functions, benefits, the brain essentially shuts down because it says, oh, I've heard all that language before. So that's actually how I help them win their proposal is looking, searching, pulling out that uncommon value that they had embedded in their products and services. All right. So they win the down select and the written proposal. And then they asked me to help them prepare for what were called the orals. They were making the oral presentation to the client. They were from a competitive landscape of about 10 other companies. They were down selected to three. And here's the interesting part. 
the customer said, you can only bring the engineers and program managers to the briefing. You can't bring any of your sales or business development marketing folks, right? Because they want to hear engineering truth, yeah? Having taught at the, a couple of weapons schools in the U.S. Navy, I had some experience with how to put on powerful, compelling presentations. And so I spent a week with their lead engineer and their program manager and taught them the kind of the subtle tips and techniques on how to create a powerful presentation. What I like to say, how to convince a room full of mavericks. Have you seen the movie Top Gun? How do you convince a room full of mavericks that your way is the better way to go? And so they won the, the down select. And it was in that moment that I realized, sure, I can consult and I can help people do the work. But what I'd rather do is teach the next generation how to do what I've been capable of doing. So I started this company. I've worked another, I don't know, seven or eight years in industry with that small company and then went to a very large defense contractor. And then 10 years ago, I decided to get out on my own and create Extra Mile Training and Development to teach the next generation. Gotcha. So you started out with a consulting firm when you left the Navy, and that's how you got your start with the, I guess you would call it consulting. And of course, you had the background of actually being the one using that that equipment. So that's interesting. I'm sure you made a very you know compelling presentations pretty easily from your experience. That's interesting. Got it. Yeah. The, the thing to note about that is Frank Luntz, the Republican strategist, and, and by the way, I don't want to, I, I hate bringing politics into good business conversations. You'll never know what my politics are. I just happen to like his book that's titled Words That Work. It's not what you say, it's what people hear that counts. And so what you're really pointing out is the language, the filter with which we hear things, right? So I have a educated as a, an engineer, computer science major in college, but I was an operator in the Navy and a program manager in both the military as well as my civilian life. So I have essentially a multilingual, not, not just English, but engineer English and program manager and operator right. English. And that's the real, what I also attribute a lot of my success to is this intersection between those who can create the designs and those who use it and then how to bring them together to get the product or service out to the field. And that's certainly what I would encourage your listeners to think about as well. You can't just think about the product or service. You have to think about how to describe it to people in ways that are multilingual for the listener's ears. Yeah, the filter with which you're listening. Yeah, it's easy to be too close to what you do and too close to your products and services. And you understand it a certain way, but explaining it to a, a prospect or someone else who's outside of your daily grind, explaining it to them usually takes a little bit of a different perspective. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, exactly. Especially for those of us like you in the, in the world of in the STEM educated world, right? We go to engineering, we take these very math and science oriented courses, and nobody ever gives you the sense of what it's like to be humanistic, right? We, we take maybe mm -hmm. one or two social science classes as electives, and they tend to go right over our heads. The problem with the STEM educated is we're not always talking to other STEM educated, right? We have to sell our ideas to those with economics degrees or philosophy or uh, art history, or it doesn't matter. The people in, in charge who are making business decisions don't always have that same linguistic filter that they're listening with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that kind of ties back to your headline on your website, extramile.training. 
and that is putting the H2H back into B2B. And so basically what you're saying is in the B2B services and product and sales world, from a technical perspective, you have to remember we're talking to humans and therefore we have to take those technical terms and understandings and put them into, I guess, human language, right? Yeah, and that's really the impetus for why I started the company was I saw this in industry that there was so much focus on the product, the service, the flux capacitor, if you will, for those who have their <laughs> back to the future bona fides. That's a great so, movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the focus was on the thing. And I realized, especially for complex sales and B2B or B2G, right? Business to government. It's actually the human relationship that counts. Nobody, in the case of my client, the government's not going to write a $250 million contract award to a company unless they know the people, unless they can trust the people assigned to the project in order to execute, right? Really good example. I was actually listening in preparation for this. I listened to the podcast you did with Chris Hodges, and he did some time at a large consulting firm, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, I don't remember, it doesn't matter, but he was saying that they had a really large IT project, a $100 million IT project. And it was, he said it was, it was I won't use the the off-color word, but it was a cluster F, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was yet, a mess. <laughs> it was a mess, right. Yet the customer still had faith because they knew the people of that kind of consulting firm would be able to come through. So it is all about the, again, the human to human. And my focus is B to B to G and even G to G, government to government. I think we've lost the human element, I'll be honest with you, in the B to C world, the business to consumer. We're now doing everything ourselves from checking out our food in the grocery store to checking in our bags at the airline counters. I Look, let that world is fine. Let them go off and do what they need to do. But I like to focus on human relationships in the B to B world. Yeah, they're typically much larger transactions. So I think it's easier to make the argument that the margins exist and it's important to have the human to human element. And so I think it's easier to, to support and to finance, whereas in the B2C transactions, there are many small transactions. So I just think from a practical standpoint, it's a bit more difficult to do, but yeah, I agree. I would, I wish it was not that way, but that does seem to be the trend and it's all about profits in that space and small transactions. Yeah. I think we can still save the, the B2B world. Look, I don't want to poo the idea of automation, and I know your particular podcast, and again, your your last guest that I listened to, Chris Hodges, there is the role for automation, even in the B2B world, as a complementary tool. Um, really, I want to stress the fact that it's not going to help you land the sale. Chris said something really interesting in, in his uh, podcast with you was let the robot do the things best suited for the robot. He was talking about the, the Japanese car manufacturers. Let the robot do the robot things and the human do the human things. And one of my colleagues who we used to work together in our large companies now within a smaller company, you know, what they're doing with chat GPT, right? They have a mandate that anything they write, they have to allow ChatGPT to run through it to make sure it's grammatically correct and editing and maybe some, right? So that's all fine, but there's still a human in the loop monitoring, right? Because we are a very long way, as both of you said in that podcast, we're still a very long way from general artificial intelligence, right? Or what they call artificial general intelligence, AGI. There we go. 
Yeah, most likely. And that is the consensus, but yeah, yeah, exactly. I agree totally. I do talk to, to businesses and clients a lot who have that disconnect in where they really don't understand what things should be automated and what things shouldn't. And so I'm a big proponent of exactly what you said, which is let the humans do what they are best at and allow technology just to leverage their efforts so that they can do more of the most important things. And so it can be a slippery slope for sure. But if you're experienced in whatever business practice that you're in and you understand the workflows and you understand the business structure, it's very clear what those processes are and what makes those processes best. And it should be obvious at that point in the business maturity process which things should be automated and which things shouldn't. I think the biggest problem is when a business really doesn't have their processes refined very well yet. And mm -hmm. so they start guessing at what things they could automate, trying to stretch to a, this might help us or that might help us when really what they need to do is they need to work on their business processes and refining that further before they implement a lot of automation. Yeah, now, now let me take it a step further. Let's imagine, if you will, the business that has their processes really locked down. They know exactly what their processes are and they've decided to automate many of them. Then we have a new problem that's added to the system. And that is this notion of how much standardization we should put in our process, right? There's a quote uh, from Albert Einstein, which I love and I actually use in my classes. He said, uh, I believe in standardizing automobiles I do not believe in standardizing human beings. Let me give you an example. For us to get on the calendar for this podcast, you sent me a link to a calendar app where I clicked on times that were available for you. It automatically entered my email. You automatically sent me as part of your process, your whatever app, your algorithm automatically sent me an invitation. I accepted I've been getting automated re reminders for this podcast. Okay, fine. Now, yours wasn't too troublesome, right? You only sent me one reminder 24 hours in advance and then one more reminder in an hour in advance. Now, I did have a similar situation with another provider. She was trying to sell me marketing and lead generation services. And the problem is that I literally got about eight reminder emails, right? <laughs> one week prior, two hours prior, one hour prior, five minutes prior. Yeah. And that's this notion of standardization. I can tell you when I worked at this large publicly traded defense contractor, they were at the time, they were the 10th largest in the world by revenue. My mentor, if I ever sent him a reminder, if either I sent him a reminder or my automated tool sent him a reminder, I would get the screws turned to me, right? Because he's an adult. He had a full-time assistant that managed his calendar and the appearance would be, I needed to babysit him. And that was that absolutely furthest from the truth. So same thing for me. I don't need reminders. I've been in the business world for 40 years. Mm -hmm. So this is where automation go awry. I was so incensed by her reminders that when I got on the call with her, I just said, hey, do me a favor. Just take me out of your CRM. I don't <laughs> want to do business with you because yeah. your automation is antithetical to my notion yeah. of what it means to be human to human. Yeah. And that's a good example of a very poorly rolled out automation. Obviously, they have an enormous disconnect between 
how they relate to and communicate to other human beings because someone put exactly. those animations in place now was it a mistake that they had so many probably not it was done purposely it just wasn't planned out very well and nobody thought hey do we really need eight reminders for somebody and so that's a great example of a project that was poorly planned or not planned at all and that's what that well, is. That's I, a I, problem with well, the implementation, you know, one reminder is okay. That's about it. That's plenty. And I'm the same way as you. I don't need reminders, but if I get one or two, that's okay. But I agree with you. Anything more than that, I'm like, okay, that's too much. <laughs> right. But again, it's not just the process because there are some people who might benefit or might desire those kind of rooms. So somebody who is, and I don't want to make this demeaning at all, but let's say there's a, what they call a neuroatypical, right? So you get somebody who is dramatically ADHD or somebody who's more artistic in nature and isn't very well organized. Maybe eight reminders is the right answer. But the point about automation is, your automation should be flexible enough to be able to read people just like we humans are, right? Is there a way to say to the automation tool, hey, can you tell by this person's LinkedIn profile or by the way they responded to messages, are they the kind that would prefer or at least give them the option? Would you prefer reminders before our call or opt out of reminders? Not just opt in and out of marketing messages, but just have AI that's smart enough to read people. Salespeople, we always talk about profiling our, our uh, prospects, yeah? So if you're in sales, there are all kinds of tools that allow you to get to know your prospect before the first ever meeting. Mm -hmm. That's part of the human to human nature. And where are we doing that with automation? How are we helping the lead generation bots and the sales generation bots learn how to read people well enough that it's not a one size fits all on the automation. That's probably my biggest complaint about the yeah. way automation is employed. Well, that, that sounds great in a perfect world, but let's be honest, it's not worth it to do that. I could do that. I could ask you how many reminders you want and write a write some code and have it, but it's not worth it. There's no ROI for it. Nobody really cares if they get two reminders or one reminder or three, it's acceptable. And for that one person that it's not acceptable for, I really don't care because there's lots of other people to talk to. So this comes back to business and making money and profits is, yeah, sure, that'd be a nice to have. I totally get it, but it's, we have a lot more important things to do, I think. But yeah, automation really is mostly used on the front end before you start the actual human to human interaction, right? So you can automate like the setting up meetings so you can connect with more people. You can automate a little bit of follow-up, a little bit of, hey, here's some of the benefits. Here's some of the value proposition. Here's like an example of a client we worked with in order to try to get that meeting so you can build that human connection. But from there, I totally agree because I have seen this done poorly too, where they'll get to that meeting, they'll make a, a somewhat of a, a human connection, they'll have that relationship move to that stage, and then they'll throw them back into some awful automation. And it's, <laughs> yeah. wow, you're really going to treat me like that now? <laughs> right. Okay, we're done. We have to be careful about that. We have to be careful about what we're saying to a person when it's, hey, we spent an hour together. We know each other a little bit. I'd like to talk further, but you're not worth me reaching out to. I'd rather just have an automated bot do it. And oh, by the way, if you say, no, you're not interested, I don't care. I'm going to keep spamming you anyway. So those are more examples of very poorly executed automations and things that shouldn't be automated.
Yeah, I, I do want to challenge your assertion about the ROI and some things. And so, yes, I would agree that it's like going to the dance in high school, right? If you ask a hundred people of the of your favored sex to dance and one says yes, okay, you're good to go. But that means your closing rate is one out of a hundred. So I've made a rather successful business on a closing rate of 82% in competitive domains. And the reason I do that is I don't go after quantity. I really take the time to go after quality leads right from the very beginning. And the ROI, again, when you're talking, look, I don't want to get too much into the, the, the weeds about my offer, but, but my offer, a typical two-day class for a company, for a corporate client costs what a brand new Honda Accord would cost, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a fairly substantial investment by a company. And for me, it's far, I have a far better return on investment if I target eight really high quality leads instead of just mass market a hundred emails out there and get the two or three that I might close one on, right? The one in 10 or one in a hundred leads. Oh, yeah. And definitely. so, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And maybe for the vast majority of B2C and some B2B sales, Okay, ROI is all about the numbers game. That's not the world I live in. And I don't know how to, quite frankly, I don't know how to execute in that world. I've, none of my systems are set up to be in that space. So I'm naive about how you handle that. Yeah, it's, it's a really straight answer. Everyone's business is different. Like you just explained, your business is different than some other people's business. So like the automations I would suggest for that person would be very different. Yeah. Than the ones I would suggest for you. Yeah. We, again, this is about planning and implementation and automating the things that should be automated and not automating the things that shouldn't be automated. That's right. For example, I, I use, yeah, I use a lot of automation in my CRM tool, mostly for internal actions, right? To remind me, I need to do something to let me know when we've passed a certain stage, but I try to avoid exposing my customers and my clients to my automation. Mm -hmm. Right. I view automation as a way, just like the robots do. Right. And again, the example of the from Chris's uh, podcast, your interview with Chris, he talked about how the auto industry shifted to using several robots in the manufacturing of cars. Right. The end driver never sees the robot and they don't care about that level of automation. Mm -hmm. But a car factory today could not survive without automation that's internal to the organization. And so I guess that's what I'm suggesting for me and those like me, I prefer to keep the, organ the automation behind the firewall and not visible to my clients. Sure. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Like I said, you don't ever want to tarnish or cheapen the perspective of your value on the relationship by automating things that shouldn't be automated. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And it's important for you to know your business and to be, obviously you have a good understanding of what things shouldn't be automated. Yeah, that's good. If you have, if, if what you're doing is working, great. But if there's an opportunity to get a really big ROI by automating something that quite frankly, it could be automated and it should be automated, then that's something to look at. And so it's a, it's a sure. judgment call for sure. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What types of clients are you looking to work for or work with and how do they start an engagement with you? How do you start that process? Yeah. So again, I'm all after helping companies grow their business, but not just grow for the sake of growth, but outcompete in the marketplace. What's a typical growth path for a fairly mature company? Companies like to grow eight to 10% a year, something that matches stock market norms. 
if a company's grown at that rate and they're stable and they're a decade old or two decade old company, okay, I'm not really going to be able to help them. My niche is companies that have either stagnated or didn't see the competition coming and are now starting to see a declining revenue. And so I help those that are trying to get back on track. Some startups, but usually startups that have some more financial stability because they, they need to understand the need to make an investment. It truly, it takes money to make money, as, as the old saying goes. So I prefer to work with companies that are looking to outcompete in their marketplace. That's number one. And number two, they have to have the right mentality about their people, right? So I specialize in professional development, amping up their intellectual skills. A lot of companies talk about capital equipment investments, right? Go buy a new robot, for example, to assemble the product or service or buy or expand their building or get new tools, purchase automation. I look for companies that also invest in their people and not just in standard compliance training or tuition reimbursement but the kind of investment in people that builds cohesive teams and helps them all. The analogy I like to give is an operating room. So in a typical operating room, you have your surgeon, your surgical nurse, and your anesthetist at a minimum, right? So those are three people whose educational backgrounds, their listening, their filter is completely different. And yet when they're in the operating room together, they share a discourse that's intended to help their patient survive. That's my goal is to help bring people together in an organization to create a common discourse to help them grow the company in a highly competitive landscape. Very interesting. So a lot of team building and professional development within organizations. Any particular niches that you like to stay in these days or? Yeah, as you can tell from my shadow box up there. So I spent 20 years flying airplanes in the Navy. I've been in the aerospace and defense, the aerospace defense and security business my entire working life. Those are really where my anecdotes and analogies work best. I'm starting to branch out. I've got my first two clients that are outside that space, but that's at the moment anyway, that's my niche, aerospace, defense, and security. And part of what I like about that community is the nature of the mission, right? It's about helping those who go in harm's way for the sake of others, right? First responders. So you got military, you've got police, fire, fire and rescue, ambulance services, healthcare. So really those who go in harm's way for the sake of others is the niche that I like to work in. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. I, I love it. Definitely. I think that's a worthy endeavor to, to help those people. Now you do consulting and training and you also have some training programs. Can you tell us about how that works? I think it's tellitlikeatopgun.com. These are your training programs. Can you tell us a little bit about your training programs and who they're tailored towards and how people, do they purchase them? Is it self-service or is it a consulting along with courses? How does that work? Yeah, so I have two basic websites. The one you mentioned at the beginning, extramile.training, that's a business card website. Uh, I have enough connections in the aerospace and defense industry that I most of my business on the consulting side and, and even the, the corporate training side have been kind of word of mouth. And with I'll be fully honest with you, the the popularity of the Top Gun movie. Most recently, last year's debut with Tom Cruise, it's already over one and a half billion dollars in worldwide revenue. 
caused a lot of people to go back and also watch the original Top Gun, <laughs> and which actually was filmed at Miramar when I was stationed at Miramar. I got lots of Top Gun stories. Many of my friends were extras in the movie, but enough name dropping. So anyway, the point is that I took one of my classes that I normally only provide to my corporate clients. It's a presentation skills course. And I rebranded it called Tell It Like a Top Gun. I, I used to teach at the at Top Gun's sister weapons school in the Navy. The Navy has actually now six weapons schools. I taught at two of the six. And so I've taken that methodology and now brought it to the general public. So it's now open for the public. Right now, it's only online. I'm going to be, once I get enough of a, uh, a new client base, I've only been doing that less than a year now. I've had a few classes under my belt, and there's a book that's going to be coming out. So be a heads up, look on my LinkedIn page, and maybe two or three months ahead of it being published called Tell It Like a Top Gun. And it's available also as a, to corporations. If you have folks that routinely, regularly give uh, oral presentations, whether they be sales or program managers, engineers, whatever the discipline is, and you're dissatisfied with their presentation skills, you can order it at the corporate level. Or as an individual, you can invest in yourself or have your company invest in you, and you can sign up at tellitlikeatopgun.com. Perfect. And this is an online training course with videos and that sort of stuff, everything they need. Actually, no, not yet. It's a live course. So I, I love teaching. I've been doing it for 40 odd years. Even before I went into the Navy, I used to teach first aid, CPR, and water safety for the Red Cross. I've taught at the university level, both in the military and as a civilian. And so I really love the interaction in the course. And if you're really going to stand up and tell it like a Top Gun, it has to be interactive. You have to be challenged. You have to be provoked, just like being a student in the real Top Gun school in the Navy. The live instruction is really where you can benefit. So I've designed the course to be live, interactive. It is online but there's no recorded videos. You get me the whole time. That's why I restrict the enrollment to 20 people at a time so that you get a lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching throughout the, the, the three-day event. It's also the other thing I found, by the way, I looked at a lot of online presentation skills courses and I was, what I saw were two camps. One was the camp, how to design your presentation, right? All the skills necessary to design your deck. Then there was another camp that was all about delivery techniques, how to become a great storyteller, how to, how to put it all together and do the, how to actually stand up and deliver. So what I've done is combine those two. And as far as I can tell, I'm one of only a few providers that had a truly robust combination of both. And because I'm targeting the STEM educated, I bring a lot of essentially neuroeconomics, the science of neuroeconomics, which is cognitive psychology, neuroscience, and behavioral economics. So not only is it about how to design the deck, but why does that particular design work best, right? What kind of image? What are you exciting in the brain? Why is this color matter over that color? Why do these words have more impact than those words based on neuroscience and, and behavioral economics? So it's quite a, I'll be honest with you, it's quite a sophisticated program and that, but especially the STEM educated appreciate all the science behind, but I like to say the hard science behind soft skills. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So that's a live course directly with you. That's amazing. Yep. And yeah, so uh, excited to, uh, to see your book come out too. And you said that's in a couple months. 
Yeah, it should be in a couple months. So not only do I have <laughs> the tips and techniques of presentation skills, but I sprinkle it liberally with some sea stories, as you well know, right? We have those, uh, <laughs> right. what we call in the Navy, uh, no shitters, right? I don't know if I can say that. You'll have to believe yeah, that. No, it's all right. It'll be all right. Anyway, yeah, there's, there's a number of humorous anecdotes, not, and again, not humor for the sake of humor, but relying on my stories from my time in the Navy to actually help drive home particular learning points. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. And it's interesting because you said you, you spend most of your time in kind of the aerospace and defense world because that's where you came from. But then you were saying about how you're branching out into kind of the corporate non-defense, non-weapons world. And that makes perfect sense because all of the things that work in, in one industry work in the other industry as well, as far as presentations and selling and communication and the, the human element, as you like to put it. And so that makes perfect sense. And your training courses are allowing you to help more people, I'm guessing, and get your message out there more. Yeah. And, and in fact, it was the encouragement from lots of my students who keep saying this is so fundamental. It works not only in their work life, but their personal life as well right? They, they have to interact with folks on the Rotary Club or their congregate, their church uh, congregation. So that's not my remit when people sign up for my stuff, right? I have to stay inside the bubble of growing business revenue. But because I'm dealing with how the brain actually works and how we make buying decisions, it does apply everywhere. It's interesting. Robert Louis Stevenson, the famous poet, and writer once quipped, it's good to remember that everybody is always selling something. We're selling our ideas. Lawyers sell strategies to uh, judges and juries, right? Or I should say sell arguments. Lawyers sell arguments to judges and juries. Accountants sell arguments, tax strategies to their clients. Engineers sell their design ideas to program managers. So it's not just selling for the sake of revenue. We're all always selling something. We even sell the notion of how to eat your veggies to our kids, right? right? So this notion of how to more powerfully convey your idea so that somebody buys it, right? So understanding how the brain makes those buying decisions truly is fundamental everywhere. And I look forward to any of your listeners who want to reach out and ask how I can bring this stuff to your industry. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a, I don't know if you read this book. It's called Everything is an Argument. It's no, I haven't. By, by who? I, mean, I can't remember the author. Everything is an Argument? All right, yeah, well, appreciate it's it. interesting. It's obviously a kind of a different idea, but it's similar in nature where, you, where you're saying everyone is always selling something. Everything is yeah. an argument. I think what basically the premise of the book was basically that there's always more than one way to to see and to interpret something and yeah. everyone is going to yep. see it in a little bit of a different way and so yeah, yeah. thank you for that recommendation as you can tell i'm always on the lookout for good books yeah yeah I, by the way there's another one called uh, let's see i don't know if it's readily at hand i don't know my library memorized but there's a book by daniel pink called to sell is human and he was a lawyer and basically making the point that even lawyers have to sell themselves to their clients. And so to your point, everything's an argument. We're always selling. It's part of the human condition is the real point. Yeah. I think it's a good thing because if we see things differently, maybe one of us is wrong and one of us is right, or maybe we're both half right, or maybe we're both wrong. But if we talked about it, we could maybe figure that out. So I think that's a positive thing. Yeah. Th there's an old saying, I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it goes something like this. If we both think the same, 
in business, then one of us is redundant. (laughs) (laughs) No shortage of redundancy out there for sure. So here is is one of the last questions and I'll open it up if you want to touch on anything else, but what advice would you give to, to entrepreneurs looking to succeed in a big way that you learned along the way that you wish you would have known when you started? Yeah. So I was always more fascinated by history and science growing up than I was, sorry, by math and science growing up than I was about social studies and history. And that's probably the biggest mistake I made was ignoring the human condition. And to be quite frank, yes, I spent 20 years in the Navy, but although I was a great instructor, I was a terrible Naval officer. And I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but it took me a very long time. And by the time I realized that it's important to understand the human condition and how unique all, I talked about the word unique earlier, right? We really are uniquely 7 billion people on this planet. And it was only through the success of my success in sales and business development that I had to explore what made me successful. And that's when I stumbled on the fact that it is about the human condition. And so once I understood I was doing it without really knowing what I was doing, again, being totally transparent with you, I didn't actually learn about what made me successful until almost a decade ago. So that's the one thing I would tell everybody, no matter what discipline you're studying or you're educating, take the time to become familiar with the human condition. And whether it be through uh, reading books or taking formal classes, look at history, look at how we got here. How did we evolve? How did we as human beings become the dominant species on the planet? And the hint is, it had little to do with this notion of standing upright and eating meat. It was about our ability to communicate and sell our ideas to other humans. That's what allowed, when you look at the curve of humanity, it's when we became imaginative about 50,000 years ago, when we started having a, a brain that could make up great stories of leadership and followership that allowed us to succeed. I hope that answered that question. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting parallel. And that's such a kind of a big picture idea that you could apply to our existence here. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. And again, the best way for people to contact you and to find out about your both your consulting and also your your training programs is what do you want to give us a reminder there? Yeah, so the my business card website is called extramile.training, not .com or training.com. It's just extramile.training. I also have a YouTube channel. You can Google Jeff Goldfinger. It's called The STEM Signal, S-T-E-M Signal, all caps. And the YouTube channel, my goal of that is to help the STEM educated increase their career signal among the workplace noise. So I'm in my, what I like to jokingly refer to is I'm in the third trimester of life. So I'm trying to give back to the, those that are in their second trimester, right? The 25 to, to 45 year olds that are emerging from their STEM education and trying to make a, a living in the world. And then lastly is tellitlikeatopgun.com where you can sign up for my three-day presentation skills training course. So that's how to get in touch with me. Awesome. And oh, and of course, LinkedIn. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and follow me there. I put out regular posts about once a week or every couple of weeks. They're not marketing or touting the business at all. They're designed to be educational in nature and provocative. But 
I'll give you an example. I had a post titled, we are obligated to manipulate our customers. That ought to make you, <laughs> I might that have to read that start one. thinking. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And that's, that's extra mile. That's X T R A. Oh, good point. Yeah. Extra mile without the leading E X T R A M I L E dot training. Yeah. It's, it's a good looking logo though. I like it like that. Thank you. Anything else you want to cover Jeff? No, I really appreciate the time that you allowed me today. I also appreciate what you're doing. This is, again, we're in that generation of sharing information, knowledge, know-how. The beauty of the internet is that we don't, we no longer have to know anything. We can find information by an easy web search. What we yeah. do need to understand is how do we get along as human beings? How do we integrate technology in the most appropriate way? And you're on the leading edge of helping that happen. So I really appreciate what you're doing, Jay. I appreciate that. It's a, it's an ongoing battle, uh, like you said, yeah. but I think we're making good progress. And there's a lot of people talking about that. There's a lot of people yep. talking about, hey, we have to be careful. We don't automate the wrong things. Hey, we have to be careful how AI is impacting humans in the world and in the workplace and in business. And hey, we have to be careful about this and that. There's a lot more talk about it than I expected so early on in the AI revolution, because we're in the very beginning stages. And oh, there's yeah. so many people talking about it. Uh, and not just big people like Elon Musk, a lot of smaller people like you and me, and tons of consultants and tech people. And I think it's the one thing that's gonna prevent something bad from happening is us all opening up that conversation and saying, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna handle these challenges and how are we gonna answer these questions and what things do we have, what we need to be careful about? I appreciate you and your pushback against some of the AI and some of the automation. And I think that's a perfectly welcome in my opinion. So thanks for that. Jeff Goldfinger, extramile.training. Thank you so much. It was great having you here. Thank you, Jay. Take care.